All right, good morning. morning. Open your Bible to Revelation. Well, you can open it to wherever you want, but I'm in Revelation. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. The topic, before he continues to receive the revelation, John eats a little scroll that is bitter in his stomach. The title of our message, Start Your Belly Aching. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning thus far. We're just so pleased to worship you. We know that you receive our praise, Lord, the way any father receives communication from his children. Now, Lord, we ask that your word would be rich and alive in our presence, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that, Jesus, you would manifest yourself in each and every life. Lord, if there's anyone here, many or maybe even several, Lord, who don't know you, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come, and that they would know that you died for their sins, Lord, that you are their Savior, that you were lifted up on the cross to draw them to yourself, and that that is what you are doing even now. I pray, Lord, that right now or sometime this morning, they would just ask you, to save them, to forgive them their sins, and to be filled with the Spirit. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Adele Edwards is an otherwise normal Florida mother of five children. She has been eating the foam inside cushions for more than 20 years. She keeps pieces of foam in her purse to snack on throughout the day. I want to find out if she's a dipper or not. But Last year, she ate 12 couches. People with pica compulsively eat items that have no nutritional value. They might eat relatively harmless items, or they might eat potentially dangerous items like flakes of dried paint or pieces of metal. Typically, young children and pregnant women can have temporary bouts with pica. One of the gals afterwards said, yeah, when I was pregnant, I craved dirt, and I thought her husband was in great shape then because he didn't have to go looking for fried pickles. He'd just go out and bring some dirt in, but I don't know how they got around that. A 62-year-old Frenchman used his stomach as a piggy bank over the course of 10 years, swallowing 350 francs and euro coins totaling $650. His family said he would eat, uh, rather steal coins when he visited others' houses to save for a snack. He needed every bit of it and lots more for the surgery to have them all removed. There are two Old Testament Bible characters who ate scrolls. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Ezekiel wrote, moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. The apostle John, who might be calling now from the other world, is it just, am I hearing that or is, is no, I'm not hearing it. I'm done. I always wanted the good kind of dementia. You know, there's a bad dementia and there's a good, there is a good happy-go-lucky dementia. I could have it right now. The Apostle John ate a scroll. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. 
And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and John did not have prophet Pica. These prophets ate God's word to strengthen them for their service and as an illustration to us. John was at a crucial moment in the revelation. He was about to hear the blast of the seventh trumpet. It will release seven angels to pour out upon the inhabitants of earth, seven bowls of the last of God's wrath in rapid succession. He was told in verse six, there should be delay no longer. It makes sense he gets some nourishment for this grand finale. Before the finale, however, there will be a slight delay. John must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues, and kings, it says in verse 11. It makes sense that he gets some nourishment to finish strong. Call it a gut check to help John focus and finish. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, a steady intake of God's word helps you focus. And number two, a steady intake of God's word helps you finish. Let's take a look at our focus in verses one through seven. A lot of you are into energy drinks. Monster promises you it will unleash the beast. I'm going to save that for a title later on in Revelation. Red Bull gives you wings. Other energy drinks promise go full throttler, go home. I wouldn't drink that. Amp yourself. That's not too bad. Enjoy the power. And then this terrible one, the massive hit that improves you a bit. How do they sell this stuff? You can make your own energy drink by just mixing simple sugar at home, equal parts water and sugar, and there you go, because that's what I think they all are. And then just drink that and some coffee afterwards, and you're good to go. That's the Pastor Gene energy drink. Only I just do the coffee part. We're in trouble because I drank some coffee between services, and I was asked not to by the elders. But anyway... We can relate to times during the day when a hit of energy can help our focus. God's word, empowered by the indwelling spirit, gives us our supernatural energy. God's word is compared to many foods. Milk, honey, bread, and meat are the most common. Jesus frequently employed food as an illustration. I am the bread of life, he said. Who comes, uh, he who comes to me shall never hunger. Jesus defeated the devil's wilderness temptations by quoting from the Old Testament where he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. God's word provides 100% of our complete spiritual nourishment. We need no supplement. Chapter nine ended with the blowing of the sixth trumpet. We are understandably excited for the seventh and final blast Not so fast. Chapter 10, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. We don't know how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but we can speculate that angels are on what we would call pins and needles waiting for the resurrection and rapture of the church. Once we are gone, Their workload increases and they are excited for it. Angels love to do the Lord's bidding, the good angels, the non-fallen angels. And right now they're kind of held at bay because God has chosen to work through the church. And I'm sure angels scratch their heads and wonder why God would prefer that because they are so much more obedient and efficient and powerful. And so I do. I think that angels are anxious in a good way 
to resume a more uh, hands-on ministry in the last days. Now, we've been suggesting that the things John sees are like a dramatic performance. They're true things. They really are going to happen, but they're presented as a really compelling drama. Costumes and wardrobe make an important contribution to any dramatic performance. This mighty angel is arrayed with impressive clothing and accessories befitting his mission. He's clothed with a cloud. There's a rainbow. His face glows, pillar of fire. And all of these have uh, lots of different... Uh, actually, there's a Bible study in each of these images. And you could... I'm just going to leave that up to you. You can meditate upon them. If you're... Uh, you know, people, what, they, what we try and do all the time is nail these down to one thing. Oh, this is what the pillar of fire means. Or this is what the rainbow means in this set, uh, setting. What we have to remember is that John is actually seeing this, and this is how this angel is arrayed. He's equipped perfectly for his mission. Uh, this is the costume that they've... You ever seen the actors when they you know, have to go in for makeup and costume, especially when they're playing some kind of weird character that uh, had to go in at 3 a.m. and get 12 hours of makeup for a 10-minute scene? And, and so, you know, the Lord says, hey, here's your outfit. This, this is what I want you to wear because of this one-time momentous announcement that's going to deal with creation. So I think more important than trying to nail down each symbol to one meaning is a big picture idea that the mighty angel was dressed for his part. Every provision is made by God to fulfill his plan of redemption to the most minute detail of even costuming. And so it's just a beautiful thing. In Christ... We have outfits to choose from. We're called the bride of Jesus, and we have opportunity to adorn our wedding garments with good works. We have the whole armor of God to stand against our enemy. We're commanded in a couple of places to put on Christ as if he were a garment. Bottom line, God equips you for your service, and in him you lack nothing that is necessary. You know, sometimes you'll see a war movie or something like that, or History Channel will talk about how they, they didn't really have the proper armaments. And so the soldiers had to, you know, uh, share different things. But we know, for example, in the book of Ephesians, we have the armor of God. I don't have to wonder if I can't find my helmet because someone else borrowed it. Uh, I don't go out into battle with any of my armor missing. Uh, I have the full armor of God. And so that's the idea we're getting here is that we will be equipped and we are equipped for whatever God calls us to do. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I think our first opinion, especially when something in the category of bad happens to us, is that we can't do that. And the Lord says, no, I've equipped you for this. You have my word, you have the indwelling spirit and everything else that you need. Verse two, he had a little book open in his hand. Theories abound as to the contents of this little book. Uh, It's probably better translated a scroll. We're not told, therefore we can't know. The import of it is that it will be given John to eat. Whatever it contains is nourishment for him to focus and finish the work. It's the word of God that is nourishment. And as he eats it, we are looking at our own lives and thinking, I need to ingest more of God's word. He had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. 
Whether this mighty angel was huge or regular sized is debated. I always see a picture of him like, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 feet tall standing on the earth. John's going to approach him and take the little scroll out of his hand, so I don't think he's too big. His stance represents a claim upon the entire earth. That's very simple. He's on the land. He's on the sea. He's making God's claim for the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. The lion has the loudest roar of all the big cats. Uh, My cat has the loudest roar of all the cats. But anyway, it can be heard from as far away as five miles. You remember visiting the Fresno Zoo when Mojo was there? Who remembers Mojo the the lion? Man, he was loud and scary. Uh, You never knew when he was going to lay. And it sounded like he was right next to you. It's at once majestic and terrifying. This has nothing to do with anything, but I've been watching on YouTube a series called The Lion Whisperer. And a terrible name, but it's about a guy, he's in Africa, he's got this preserve where he hangs out with lions and hyenas and cheetahs, and it's, it's incredible. Um, it just uh, wonderful stuff. Uh, anyway, so since there is nothing on Netflix, check that out. We don't know what the mighty angel cried with a loud voice, but the mention of the lion's roar reminds us that the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, is coming as king to rule his kingdom, and none will be able to withstand him. C.S. Lewis got it right when he chose Aslan the lion to represent Jesus in his Narnia series. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Verse four, now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The seven thunders must have been intelligible because John was going to write down their content, but God wanted this information sealed. One commentary suggests, and I quote, besides the terrors foretold, There are others unutterable and more terrifying lying in the background. And so again, uh, though we're getting this revelation of Jesus Christ and we're learning about the great tribulation and everything in it is true and will come to pass, there are obviously things that happen that we don't know about. And uh, the suggestion is that these seven thunders are so terrible that God doesn't want us to even think about them until they actually happen. There are things which you will never know in this life. While not knowing might confuse or frustrate you at the time, sometimes it's good not knowing. Not knowing can keep you humble. If you think you know everything and have all of the answers, you have a tendency to get puffed up with pride. Not knowing some things keeps you humble as you must depend upon the Lord each step of the way. A lot of times we we want to see the end. Something happens and we think, Lord, why? Why is this happening? Or why did you let that happen or whatever? And the Lord says, just trust me every day. Stay humble. I have a plan. And not knowing keeps you moving. As I said, God has a plan for you, but the road can take some weird twists and turns. If you knew some of the difficulties you faced, you might draw back. I always like to joke around, uh, you know, about my coming to Hanford. Uh, you know that I love it here and I love the community and I, it's just been great the past close to however many years, decades now. But um, 
At certain moments in Hanford, if I knew something was going to happen because I moved here, I would have said, no, Lord, you know what? I'm happy in San Bernardino. How about I just stay here? And that's true. Many of you in your life, if you knew something was going to happen that you think is not good for you, well, you're going to avoid that. And so God doesn't, he's not going to give you the whole plan because, and even if you, you know, are going to go for it, he doesn't want your input. Do you ever, hey, you know, you're in charge, you'd say, here's the plan, and people say, well, I'd like this. No, the time for input is over. The time for implementation is now. We have some feeling with God that we have some, some input. God said, yeah, you have input. Go out into all the world, share the gospel, but this is the plan for your life. Well, Lord, how about we do this? Instead of Hanford, how about Hawaii? They start the same way with the same two letters. So, you know, and they share some other letters as well. So, you know, and, and God says, no, you don't understand. This isn't for debate. Leon Morris says, let us not proceed as though all has been revealed. It's better for us to know who than why or how. And so verse five, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no delay. Uh, it should be rather delay no longer. If you're doing some reading on your own as you study the Revelation, you might encounter commentators who say this is Jesus, but it's not. For one thing, he is the one who is the creator. He's not swearing to himself. He has no need to give this kind of an oath. And besides that, when the mighty angel was first introduced, John said he was another angel, and that word means another of the same kind. And so this isn't Jesus. Jesus isn't coming until the end of the book. God's creation is a theme of the mighty angel's oath. And I think that's telling because what's happening here is that God is fulfilling his plan to restore creation as he redeems mankind. God created the universe and put Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden paradise and declared it is good. Our original parents sinned and it became very bad. From that very moment until today, however, God has been working providentially to redeem and restore what was ruined. In the book of Romans, we're told, and I quote, the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And so this angel is reminding us that in the revelation, in the time of the revelation, during the great tribulation, and as it ends and we go into the millennial kingdom, God's plan that began in the Garden of Eden is going to consummate. He's going to redeem the earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new heavens and a new earth, uh, as well as a redeemed humanity. And the angel is exciting to say there'll be a delay no longer, because from our point of view, it seems like there's been a 7,000-year delay. That's about how long ago Adam and Eve would have been in the garden if you follow the chronology and the genealogy. Uh, and so, you know, it seems like a long time, right? 7,000 years. When you live 60 or 70 or 80 or 100 years, I mean, 7,000 years is a long time. God says, you know, kind of 1,000 years is maybe like a day to me, and a day is like 1,000 years. Not a 
you know, a ratio, but it's just to remind us that it hasn't been that long from God's perspective. And I know I say, I have a hard time explaining this, but the plan that God set out, it takes a few thousand years of human history because it involves redeeming a race of people who exercise their free will against God. He has to figure out how to forgive that and restore them and end up with a race of people who still has free will but can't exercise it against him anymore without being forced. And then just think of how complicated your own heart is, your human heart. I mean, husbands and wives, you you can't understand each other. I mean, you act like you can, but you can't. And that's just on a human level. And so God, this is a big project. This is a big plan. It takes, you know, as you read the Bible as one continuous progressive narrative, you see, hey, it took exactly this amount of time to bring us to this point in history right now. God is right on his timing. But it involves, uh, it involves your heart, it involves salvation, and it involves God not forcing himself on anyone, but uh, having them freely choose. And in the end, you and I will be glorified and have a free will that is unable to sin, just like God has a free will, but is unable to sin. Now, we won't be God. We're not going to be gods. We'll be human beings that are glorified, but we will be those who have chosen to love the Lord as he has loved us, and our free will will exist uh, only for good. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the timing will rapidly accelerate to the second coming of Jesus. Verse seven, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. The Old Testament prophets spoke often about the finish, the glorious return of the savior and the establishment of his kingdom. The details, however, were not fully revealed to them. Peter, at one point in his writing, says the prophets desired to know more, but they, they didn't understand many times what they were writing. That's because they were mysteries. And in the Bible, a mystery is something you cannot know except by revelation from God. And so they were hidden in the Old Testament and are now being revealed. In Matthew 13 and Luke 8, Jesus tells his first century disciples, like us, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians 4.1 that you are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so these are things that could not have been known that are now revealed and that we are able to tell people. For example, the rapture of the church is a mystery that is revealed in this church age. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, Behold, I show you a mystery. In other words, I'm telling you something you couldn't otherwise know. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And he means the last trump of the church age. And so we can look at the, New, the Old Testament with uh, the benefit of our knowledge now and say, oh, this character Enoch says he walked with God and then he was not. He was taken to heaven. Or Elijah, all of a sudden taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And so we can see there's a couple of guys that God just plucked out of the earth and brought them to heaven. But nobody concludes from that that, oh, I see what's going to happen. There's going to be this thing called the church filled with the Holy Spirit. Each individual believer filled with the Spirit and corporately filled with the Spirit. And one day, Jesus is going to come back in the clouds the voice of an archangel and a trumpet and the dead in Christ are going to rise and then 
people who are alive are going to have their bodies transformed into glorified bodies. No, no, nobody knew that. Nobody knew that until Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15. It was a mystery that was being revealed, and, and we have those mysteries to show others. There are other mysteries, but you get the general drift. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by means of a plan no one could ever have begun to imagine. It was a mystery that is fully revealed in the revelation. It culminates in the end with the Lord reigning forever and ever. Scholar Robert Thomas writes this, the mystery of God consists of the heretofore unrevealed details unfolded in the chapters from here to the end, chapters that tell of the institution of God's kingdom on earth and eventually in the new heavens and new earth. It's become popular for churches to remove uh, remove prophecy from their menu. If ever there was a time to retain a healthy portion of prophecy on your plates, it is now. At the very least, since prophecy overall occupies 30% of God's word, at least that much ought to be in your meal plan. I mean, just honestly, everybody's been on some kind of a diet. Probably most of you are on a diet right now. And even if it's not a diet, you have some kind of nutritional plan and you're trying to eat a balanced meal. How many Oreos can I eat as opposed to fudge sickles, you know, that kind of thing. And so I know sometimes people say, oh, you know, you guys emphasize prophecy too much. All right. I think we can, not too much, but we do emphasize it because I think that's the age in which we live. Uh, it's, we see things coming to fruition that in a remarkable way. But every, any church that's teaching the word of God in any capacity should have about 25, 30, 35% prophecy. Not every Sunday necessarily, but uh, all together because the Bible is 30% prophecy. And there are 500 or so prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. And so you can't avoid it unless you're not really teaching the Bible. If you're teaching self-help messages and feel-good messages, uh, then yeah, you're probably not going to talk about the abyss being opened and creatures coming out that are going to, you know, attack human beings. There's nothing to feel good about that, you know. Uh, sooner or later, you're going to have to do it. I, I know entire churches the entire time I've been in Hanford, like 35 years, that have never taught the book of the Revelation. Truth is, we haven't taught it enough, but we teach it from time to time. But uh, So you, you see what I'm getting at. Taking in prophecy keeps you focused on things above. Without it, we tend to get earthbound, focusing on self and not service. We get spiritual indigestion. A daily dose of ready or not, Jesus is coming is the pick-me-up that we need. Now, a steady intake of God's word helps you finish. If Marie Osmond says, join Nutrisystem, but looks just the same afterwards as she did beforehand, you're disinclined to join. If God's word isn't changing us, why would folks want to join? We're to ingest God's word, be nourished by it, and then mature to become more like Jesus. Warren Wiersbe suggests that the illustration of eating the word is intended to remind us to make the word flesh, to make it incarnate for others to see. Put some meat on those bones, you know, and and let people see the Lord. Verse eight, then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Same voice, God's voice, hearing from God directly gave John boldness to approach a mighty angel and ask for the scroll. These angels are terrifying. Anytime an angel appears in scripture, it's a terrifying thing. And 
depending on how you respond to them, they can do some weird things to you. Uh, they'll make you deaf and dumb if you ask a dumb question. You know, people say there's no such thing as a dumb question. <laughs> yeah, here it is. You're deaf and dumb because you asked this. And so John, you know, would have a natural fear of angels, especially as a Jew. And then they say, hey, go into this giant angel or this mighty angel and get that book out of his hand. The Lord gave him boldness in order to do that. The combination of the spirit of God and the word of God gives spiritual boldness. People don't know if they have courage until they need it, right? Until you're faced with a situation that calls for courage, you just don't know. A lot of times Christians feel like, well, I don't have the strength or the power or the knowledge or the wherewithal or the whatever to, to handle this situation. But you, you can because you, you have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. I, I'm, yeah. Is there ever going to be a time in your natural life where you say, Yep, I'm done with the word of God. I've read it as much as I'm ever going to read it. I can't get another thing out of it. But sometimes we act like that. We think, well, if I, if I knew a little bit more about the word, then I would you know, be able to rise to this occasion. And the Lord says, no, you, I live in you. And, and if all you know of God's word is John 3, 16, it's enough for you to handle this situation. And, and so that's uh, the kind of thing that we're talking about here with boldness. Ever been to a dinner theater where they involve audience members? It's why I don't go to dinner theater. I'm a bad audience member to involve. I really am. John becomes a participant. Up until now, he had just been a spectator. God's going to ask you to participate in ways you feel totally inadequate, as I was just saying, in ways that require boldness that can only come from him because he wants to prove his strength and his sufficiency, not yours. The Lord is never going to say, hey, guys, look at what Gene can do on his own. I know what I can do on my own. Really, really messy, bad stuff. But he's going to say, hey, you want to you see something funny? <laughs> look at what I can do with Gene. Oh, man, I bet you never saw that coming. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the book. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Whichever version of the Bible you prefer, as you ingest God's word, it all becomes the BSV, the bittersweet version. John was experiencing the sweet joy of having Jesus revealed to him, of seeing the future rule of Jesus on earth. Yet, remember, he's exiled on the island of Patmos, being persecuted for the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ is bittersweet. It's full of beasts and bowls and battles while simultaneously promising a blessing for reading it. Everything in it reveals God's mercy towards Christ rejecting men, but also his wrath against sin and his judgment upon it. Our lives will be bittersweet until we are with the Lord. Some of you may have better lives than others from a human point of view. Better health, better resources, better finances, better careers, better whatever. But there are bittersweet moments in all of our lives because we live in a fallen world. And so we take the Bible in not to sweeten everything and make it like saccharine sweet, but to have a real foundation on which to stand when the bitter breaks through. Verse 10, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Yes, we take this literally. Why not? 
For all we know, the scroll was made of edible material. They do that, right? If you're a baker, there's stuff that you can fond it and stuff like that that you can write on and then eat. It's pretty cool. Even if it wasn't, you can eat paper. Didn't you ever get caught with a note that had been passed to you in class and have to eat it? Oh, yeah. You can't have the teacher reading Gene Loves Pam to the class. I mean, that, you got to swallow that thing. If not a note, I'm sure you'd have a spitwad that you have to swallow to destroy the evidence. Nothing, and when I was like a spitwad king when I was in school. I want so much to teach my grandchildren how to use spitwads, but I, I also want to see them from time to time. So I'm waiting for them to discover it on their own. Grandpa, what's that straw in these round objects? Nothing, nothing at all. No, I, I, I've kept them in the dark. But yeah, spitwads were great. I loved them, but you couldn't get caught with the evidence, and so you'd swallow those things. So you'd make a, did you do, I, I used to have ammunition. You'd make a bunch of them and put them down, you know, and so, and then you're, it's the only way to win a spitwad war. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues, and kings. It was called the bellyache heard round the world. It would have made a great title for this message, but no one's ever heard of it. But it was the name given to a peculiar malady that in 1925 felled none other than baseball sultan of Swat. Babe Ruth. Uh, it was a big deal at the time. They never did find out what the problem was. John had a bellyache that is still being heard around the world. So far as I can tell, the primary purpose of the internet is to publish what are called fails. Have you discovered fails? They're short videos of people doing things and then wiping out. And we laugh. It's, half of it's not funny. I mean, there's kids on skateboards coming down roofs who like face plant into the ground and stuff, and luckily they stop before you find out that they're dead or something, but fails of another nature are no laughing matter. Too frequently, another one bites the dust as a Christian leader finishes poorly. Not an excuse, but a lot of our favorite Bible heroes bit the dust along the way or in the end. Noah, Samson, Gideon, and David are guys with notable failures. Let's learn from them, double down, and finish well. John is being nourished to finish well. When we, say that a, uh, excuse me, when we say that a steady diet of God's word helps your focus and your finish, it doesn't mean it, uh, reading the Bible stands alone or that it's some magic potion. The donut man got it right when he sings, I read it and I do it. The balanced Bible diet should encourage you to pray, to regularly fellowship in a local church, and to tell others about Jesus. And as you do those things, they in turn tend to motivate you, motivate you to stay in God's word. They all work together in harmony, hand in hand. Those are the, the four pillars really of what it means to be a Christian. Read God's word, talk to God, fellowship in a local church, tell others about Jesus. And they all work together in a beautiful way. Do you suffer from pica? We mentioned the Frenchman who ate paper, money, and coins. If you and I are laying up our treasures for ourselves on earth rather than in heaven, that's a form of pica in the spiritual realm. Because I'm, I'm in a sense, keeping them for myself. I, I think they can nourish me, that I can grow in them. As I watch my, you know, money, money, money by the pound grow, 
then, you know, I, I need that tuppence. Uh, and, and yet we're not investing in heaven. It's a form of pica. Likewise, anything that you turn to for strength or satisfaction that is not God's word. Since it is possible for a believer to suffer from pica, we need to occasionally perform a gut check. Like Jesus, we have food the world knows nothing about to do God's will and finish the work. Jesus said, he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's pray.